are listening to the Thornapple Valley Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Our hope is for you to be encouraged and to connect with God during this message. If you'd like to know more about Thornapple Valley Church, visit tvcweb.com. I grew up in the church, but the church that I grew up in didn't teach about a God of grace and love. It taught about a God of you know, anger, who couldn't wait to punish me for the things that I had done wrong. So as I grew up, I decided that I could never be good enough for that God, and so I walked away from him. By the age of 17, I was working in the sex industry. I started using drugs. I became violent. I became reckless. I had money. I had power. I had every single thing that I could want, but there wasn't enough drugs or alcohol to fill the hole that I had in my heart. I would often mock God. Um, I thought I was an atheist. Mm. And in October of 2008, I got to meet him again when I got into a terrible car accident. And right before my accident, I felt this hand on my chest that pushed me back. And I heard this voice that said, this is going to hurt, but you're going to be okay. And that atheist started to question what that was, because I knew that it was real. And I thought, maybe I'm just angry at God. So while I laid there with my broken neck, healing for the next six months, I started to read the Bible. And I would read these stories. And I remember once I was really angry, and I yelled out, and I cursed at God. And I said, why did you do this to me? Why did you destroy my life? And I heard that voice again. But this time it said, what makes you think I didn't save it? So I started going, and I started hiding in the backs of churches. I started trying to do street outreach. I would put blankets in my car. I would try to minister to the homeless. I even got baptized, but I was still living this double life. I was still in the sex industry, and I couldn't let go of it out of fear. Seven years ago, I met my husband, and he walked through that pain with me, and he walked through all of the healing that I needed, and I decided to let go of that industry, and my ministry work exploded. I have a special needs child. And when we moved here, we, we came to this church, and I remember sitting in the service, and this call to tithe came forward. And again, I heard that voice asking me to trust because money was the one thing that, that got me in the positions that I was. And so I decided with my husband, and we decided to accept that tithe challenge. But it wasn't money that I got back from God. We have this special needs child, and all of a sudden, she went from this nonverbal kid to speaking. Wow. Doctors that we couldn't have access to for years started to come forward, you know. And we actually answered a call to baptism together. And my husband and I got baptized together as a married couple. I got baptized as myself, finally. <laughs> Thank you. We sat here in that pew. And we answered another call to action, and, and that was like listening to them talk about ministry work. And we went down to Kentucky through the donation of friends and family. We went to the heart of the flood zone and got to help and minister with people there. It's, it's been incredible. I guess, if anything, I'm here to tell you that whatever it is that you're holding on to, let it go. Better than anyone, I know how scary it is to walk away from the only thing you've ever known and hand your life over to God. But whatever it is that you're holding on to, I promise you he has something better waiting for you.
Well, this morning, if you came in a little bit late, this is an exciting morning for us. And part of the reason why it's an exciting morning is across all of our campuses, this is baptism weekend, and collectively, all campuses combined, we have over 40 people getting baptized today. So can we celebrate that? Isn't that awesome? And I have to tell you, I love baptism because baptism is all about going public. It's saying, God, I'm not ashamed to be identified with you because of what you have done in my life. You know, as I'm talking about baptism, I'm reminded of this pastor who one day he's got a small congregation there out in the woods at a pond and he's baptizing people. Well, in stumbles a guy who had a little bit too much to drink. He had a little bit too much communion juice, if you know what I'm talking about. So this guy stumbles up. And the pastor sees him, and he interrupts the baptism. And so the pastor says, hey, sir, do you want to find Jesus? The man says, yeah, I'd love to find Jesus. He says, well, let me baptize you. So he baptizes the man, puts him under the water. The man comes up, and the pastor says to the man, have you found Jesus yet? The man says, nope, didn't find Jesus. The pastor says, I know what I need to do. I need to hold him down a little bit longer. So he <laughs> baptizes him again, holds him down a little bit longer, brings him up. Says to the man, have you found Jesus? The man says, nope, haven't found Jesus. Pastor says, I get it. What I need to do is I need to hold him down even longer. He's really sinful, so we got to get him clean. So holds him down for about 45 seconds. The man's kicking. He's having a hard time breathing. He brings the man up. The man's out of breath. He looks at the man and says, have you found Jesus yet? And the man looks back at him and says, are you sure this is where he fell in? Because I'm having a hard time finding him. Let me just tell you, here's the truth about baptism. Baptism is not about finding Jesus because Jesus was never lost. The, the truth about baptism, what it is, it's, it's saying that, Jesus, you found me. And because you have found me, I want to declare to the world that change. In simple terms, I like to say baptism is a public declaration of a private decision that you made to follow Jesus. As you get baptized, symbolically, you take off your losing jersey and you put on a winning jersey. You're, you're saying, God, no, I'm taking off the losing jersey and I'm putting on the Jesus jersey. If you want to know what that's like, talk to Matt Stafford. He kind of understands what it's like to take off a losing jersey, put on a winning jersey. You guys didn't like that one? Anyway, it's true though. Here, here's the point. Baptism is about change. And, and we talked about last week. That when it comes to being different, being changed, this is what the early church was all about. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and last week we talked about how the early church, they were changed by a crisis. They were marked by this crisis, and this crisis actually had two parts of it. The first part of their crisis was painful. It was painful. Because this guy named Jesus is going to show up on the scene. He's going to live for 33 years, and he is going to be iconic, heal the sick, raise the dead, speak to the masses. And he was so bold that one of his first sermons in Luke chapter 4, he's going to walk into the synagogue. He's going to open up the scroll to Isaiah 61, where we read those famous words, for the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Jesus is going to sit down and he's going to say, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have sat up and said, he's saying he is the Messiah. Because that's who they've been waiting for. They, they've been believing for a Savior, somebody to rescue them from the Romans, somebody to bring change and a difference. And he does. Everything he does points to the fact that he is different and he's making a difference. But then comes that faithful night where Jesus gathers in a small room with his disciples and he looks at them with tears in his eyes and he says, tonight, I'm going to die in the worst way. I don't know if any of you have ever had your Savior die, a mentor, a coach, somebody that you believed in, somebody you hoped would bring change and did bring change to your life. He dies. The most public, humiliating death possible. But he didn't stay dead. Because we said the second part of that crisis was that even though Jesus died, and even though the crisis was painful, the other part of it, it was prophetic. It was prophetic. That Jesus rose from the grave. Now, this is not my message, but let me just say this as a side note. Some of you are going through something very painful right now. And in the midst of that pain, there's something on the inside of you, kind of like uh, Lena said earlier, there's something on the inside of you that says, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And sometimes God does something through that that's prophetic. And, and so I, I feel like God wants me to say to somebody right now who's in the midst of something painful, that that painful thing that you're walking through could just be prophetic. It could be the very thing that would launch you into the purpose that God has for your life. That's what happens for the early church. Jesus is going to resurrect from the dead. He's going to spend 10 days with his disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, he promises them that they would experience a different power. In Acts 1a, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. He promises them power. What we said last week is that a witness is somebody who testifies to what they've seen, heard, or experienced. But now in Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to be at today, if you've got a Bible, in Acts chapter 2, this is where it happens. What, what Jesus promised shows up. In Acts chapter 2, here's what we're going to read, starting in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it's the fourth of the spring priests on the Jewish calendar. Starts with Passover, then there's unleavened bread, then there's first fruit, and then 50 days later is Pentecost. It says in verse 2, suddenly the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the house they were sitting. So you got to imagine this. Here are these early disciples, and they're praying, they're talking to God. And, and I assume that they're praying average prayers, probably self-centered prayers, the kind of prayers that you and I pray that goes like this, Lord, help me, help my kids, help my knee. God, bring down this inflation. God, would you do a miracle? God, I need you in this moment. And then all of a sudden, he answers. There's a sound like a violent, roaring wind. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a hurricane. I grew up down south. They happen all the time, and it can be scary. Sound of a violent wind comes in. It fills the house where they're sitting. And then in verse 3, it says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages 
as the Spirit enabled him. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Dr. Peter Wagner suspects that there was about Jews from about 70 different nations that were gathered in Jerusalem because three times a year, Jewish people would come to Jerusalem because they were commanded by the law to be in Jerusalem. One was for Passover, another was for Pentecost, and then in the fall there was another time that they were supposed to gather. They're there, and God shows up. Verse 6 says, When they heard this sound, they came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, this is an interesting fact about the very first time that the Holy Spirit shows up. The people are amazed, but they're not amazed just because they have a heavenly tongue, but that these guys have a human tongue or human language. Uh, you, you can read it for yourself. You look back at what, what, what's said here. What they're amazed by is the fact that these guys are speaking in a language that they never learned. You got people from Rome, and they are hearing a guy named Peter from Galilee who's speaking perfect Latin, and they're going, hey, there ain't no Rosetta Stone. How did he learn this? It's because he's filled with God's Spirit. You know, as I was reading that, here's the thing that jumped out to me is that when God shows up, the first thing that I've always noticed is God's presence is unmistakable. Unmistakable. When God shows up, there is not a doubt if God is there. And I know a lot of people are wondering, is God real? I'm not sure. Was that something that I felt or was that God? When God shows up, you will know that he shows up. His presence is unmistakable. And there's a reason why God is going to show up the way that he's going to show up here. Because if you go back to Exodus chapter 19, go back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 18 and 19. The Bible says, when the day of Pentecost come. See, Jews believe on the day of Pentecost is when Moses went on the mountain and he received the commandments directly from God. Here's what happened on, on that day 1,500 years earlier. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke and the Lord descended on it with fire. So you got wind and fire again. And it says, the smoke bellowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain was trembling violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. So you see fire, you see wind, you see God speaking. You got earth, wind, and fire in September. Some of you will get that on your way home. But here, here's the point. Everybody 50 and under didn't understand exactly what I was talking about. Go look it up on the internet. Here's the point. When God shows up, it's unmistakable. And here's the second thing is the people are, are amazed, it's unexplainable when God shows up. See, any of us who have had a moment with Jesus, it's hard to explain how he brought change in our life, how, how he made us different. I imagine there's some people in here, and we, we've struggled with addiction and loneliness and, and, and perversion and pain and difficulty, and there's something where when we got to the end of the road, we called on him and said, Jesus, I need your help. And in an unexplainable way, we felt grace and love and the power to say no. And it didn't happen all at once, but we said no, and then it got easier and easier and easier and easier because the power of God is unexplainable. Here's how they're going to respond to the power of God. Going back to Acts chapter 2, 
verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, I want you to notice something there. In verse 4, God's people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says everyone was filled with awe because they were different. They, they, they had a different kind of devotion. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 43, they were all filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Then verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold possessions and gave to anyone who had need. They were different. And they were different because they were devoted to different things. Here's the things that the Scripture says in verse 42 they were devoted to. The first thing they were devoted to was Scripture. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. See, they had had the Scripture all their lives, but now because the Holy Spirit is in them, it comes alive. They, they had read about in Joel where God says, in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And now it's happening. So they begin to be devoted to the very scriptures that can change their lives. Have you noticed this? That there are some Christians who are more devoted to their political ideology than they're devoted to their theology of the scriptures. And here's what I just want to say about that. If you are, then every two years, every four years, you can go up and down. Every two years, you're going to have anxiety. Oh, my gosh, our country is going to die. And then, and then your candidate wins, and you can go up and down. These guys, they began to vote it to the Scripture. It brought hope. It brought peace to their lives because they were not living for an earthly kingdom. They were living for the kingdom of God. It's amazing. See, in Jesus' day, there were different political sects. Let me just give you four of them during Jesus' day. First, there was a group called the Essenes. This was a group of people who lived out in the wilderness. They wanted to be bad from the evil and the corruption of society. Then there was a group called the Pharisees. The New Testament talks quite a bit about these people. They were legalistic. They had the law. And, and, and their thought was, we are so smart that that's what's going to make us know God. But they couldn't see Jesus right in front of them. And then there was a group called the Sadducees. This was the high priestly class. They had all the Jewish and, and power in the land, and they took care of the temple. And then lastly, there was a group called the Zealots. They wanted to overthrow the government. And Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to build a kingdom of this earth. I came to build a, a kingdom that would change you from the inside out. They were devoted to the Scriptures. But then the second thing is that they were devoted to fellowship or community. Community. See, that word fellowship in the Greek is a word that means a deep brotherhood. See, these people didn't come to church. They saw themselves as the church. This was not a group of people who, when somebody had a problem, they said, I will pray for you. When somebody had a problem, they said, I will do something about it because you're part of my family. You're my flesh and blood. There's something we're united by blood, but it's the blood of Christ that unites us. And because they had that different kind of community, People were filled with awe. Let, let me just say this as your pastor. I love that you come here on the weekends. I love that you attend online, those of you who attend online. But if you only come here on the weekend, you're only getting half of the TVC experience. We do tribes because that's literally what we want, th that you would have a tribe of people to be around you, to journey with you through the highs, through the lows, through the difficult moments of life, 
because we want to be devoted to one another like that first church. You know, when I think about somebody like that, I think about my friend Erica. Here's her story. Watch this. I do remember like one very specific conversation that Zach and I had had, and we said, I think it's time. Like, we really want a kid. Like, they're really cute. At that particular time, we just started talking about adoption specifically, and what we felt most inclined toward was adopting a high-risk kid. The process is uh, very daunting from a paperwork perspective, and from also from a financial perspective. Both my husband and I, in separate occasions, had the sense from God that said, if you put in the work, I can make it happen. Around that time, we also like started a family tribe. I was also a part of a women's tribe as well, and they both supported us throughout the entire process, just praying with us, constantly asking how we're doing. So that's when we just started brainstorming ways and ideas for fundraising and allowing other people to partner with us in our adoption process. And we eventually landed on India. Ababella. Good job. The church has supported us as a family in so many different ways through this adoption journey. Then also, now that our kids are home, have just loved on our kids and helped them to grow and become a part of this community and adjust to this really crazy new world that they're a part of. The girls serve in many capacities at church. Um, there are greeters, they give hugs to just about everybody. They just are super involved in just that community and knowing everyone. It seems like they know all the people walking in and they know them. So both the girls have lots of friends at church and they look forward to seeing them. And when they can't find their friend they're looking for at church, they're always wondering where they are and if they're gonna be back next week. Hi. Our community at TBC has really grown, not only our marriage, but also us as a family and brought us together. And in our tribe, we've grown spiritually and grown really deep friendships that we weren't sure we would find in a church family. So we are blessed. Yeah. You know, let me just say this about tribes. I've often thought that Many people will say, the reason that I'm not in a tribe is I'm too busy right now. But what I've always said is, you invest in what you need later, so that you'll have it when you need it. We all need a tribe. We all need somebody to journey with us through life. 
And that's why when you guys came in, we gave you this handout. It, this is not a program. This is about community, about relationship. Because we want to be like that early church. They were devoted to Scripture. They were devoted to community. And then the third thing in verse 42 it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread or communion. But when I say communion, I'm talking about more than just an act that we do around here about every six weeks. We will take some time and we'll remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. What most scholars believe when it says they were devoted to breaking of bread, that they would have a feast associated with communion called the agape feast or the love feast where they would eat. For the first time, it didn't matter if you were a CEO of a company or you were a slave, you would come together and you would be in communion with other believers. They would eat, they would have a feast, and then they would receive communion and they were to remember what Jesus did for them on the cross. Many of you heard me say this before, but in the very first century, you got to remember that, that this is just weeks Years after Jesus literally died on the cross, I imagine as Peter is having communion with John and Thomas, that after they ate and they celebrated one another's company, as they started to say, this is his body that's given for us. This is his blood that's poured out. I would imagine Peter would start to weep. Some of them violently we start to tremble because they remember the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ. They saw it literally. And, and Peter would remember how he denied Jesus and how he felt like a loser and he would never be anything. And Jesus came back and says, because I died for you, I love you. It was something they were devoted to. They were devoted to communion, but then lastly it says they were devoted to prayer. Because prayer was not an empty ritual. It was a powerful tool that brought the presence of God. See, while they were praying, the presence of God came. As you continue reading through the book of Acts, there's a moment where, where, where the Jewish leaders try to intimidate them, and they begin to pray. And the Bible says that the whole house that they were in was shaken because they were devoted to prayer. Prayer brought miracles. Many of you heard me say this before as well. But too many times as Christians, we look at prayer as our last resort instead of our first option. We say, there's not, nothing we could do left but pray. Like, all the real solutions, we've exhausted those. So then prayer is kind of our wishful thinking. It can't really change my marriage, my mind, my heart, my life, my family, my future. So let's give it a shot. But for them, they were devoted to prayer. See, we want to be different. We want to be devoted to what the church was devoted to. So across the next 90 days, from, from this point to the end of the year, our Be the Difference, we want to be devoted to Scripture. We want to be devoted to community and tribes. We want to be devoted to, to remembering what Jesus did for us or doing life together. But we want to be devoted to prayer. And that's why starting Monday to the rest of the year, here at our Hastings campus, from 9 a.m. to 3.30 we're going to take that family room back there, and we're going to just turn it into a prayer room. So you can come anytime and just pray. Maybe you want to pray 15 minutes. Maybe you want to pray 30 minutes. Maybe you want to pray an hour. Maybe you want to just swing in just for a moment during lunch. But we want to be devoted to prayer because it makes a difference. You know, as I bring this to a close, I want to end with a question. What are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? 
Because what you're devoted to will make a difference in your life. If you are devoted to being triggered and being angry and being offended, you will be an expert. You will be an expert at getting offended. If that's what you're devoted to, and so you just walk around waiting for somebody to hurt your feelings, you, you, you'll be an expert at getting offended. If you're devoted to sarcasm, you'll be an expert at being reckless with your words and careless about other people's feelings. But if you're devoted to Scripture, to prayer, to communion, to community, you'll be an expert at being different. That's the kind of church we want to be. God, today I pray that you would help us to be devoted to what truly makes a difference in our life. So many times we're devoted to stuff that steals our time, our attention. Really, that steals our peace. Help us to be devoted to the right things. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to the Thornapple Valley Church Podcast. If you found this message encouraging, we invite you to share it. For more information, visit tbcweb.com.